0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org.
1: i ask that you turn in your Bibles to Acts 17, and we'll be starting at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying... Now when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Here ends the reading of God's word.
0: Thanks, Mandy and Brian and Mina. Uh, parents, <clears throat> you can dismiss your children now for Children's Church if you'd like to do that. And keep your Bibles open there, please, to Acts chapter 17, which is our sermon text this morning. Um, some very <clears throat> sobering words there from, uh, from Mina. And uh, at the very least, I think it should make us all very grateful that when we think about evangelism, when we think about talking to others about the gospel, while we do have to perhaps be concerned about the emotional intellectual persecution that Pastor Brian spoke of, it is good to know that at least right now we don 't have to worry about someone injuring us or burning down our homes. Uh, there is a great freedom that we have uh, in this country to talk about Jesus, to proclaim the gospel, to, to evangelize. And uh, so that's something to keep in the back of our minds as we continue through uh, this sermon series on evangelism. I'm going to lighten the mood a little bit. (coughs) The Dick Van Dyke Show, I know that's way before a lot of your time, but some of you, at least in this service, remember the Dick Van Dyke Show from the early 60s. One of my favorite shows, favorite sitcoms, watched it repeatedly when I was growing up. The show was on often in our household and Uh, I still see repeats on MeTV from time to time, and uh, I think the show holds up really well. Funny show. It's about um, Rob and Laura. That's Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore. They're pictured, the two adults, Rob and Laura. They're married. Uh, There's another character on the show named Sally. Uh, Sally works in Rob's office. Sally's single, and she's always looking for a man. She's always trying to get married. And there's a particular episode where Sally begins to date a man who seems very mysterious. His name is Anthony Stone, and nobody really knows anything about this guy. And Rob and Laura are very concerned about who this guy is and what he's into. They're afraid he's into some uh, shady business. And so they each decide they're going to try to figure out what the problem is. So Laura gets together with Sally and finds out that he's a mortician. And so, you know, Laura's kind of relieved, not as bad as she thought. Well, then we go to a different scene. Rob is trying to find out something about this man, and he finds out that he's married. And then later in the show, we find this scene where Rob and Laura are having this conversation about this guy. And they come into Rob's office, and they say to each other, do you know and they both say yeah i found out and laura looks to rob and says it's no big deal <laughs> and rob is just astonished you you're kidding what and laura says oh rob you must be one of sally's square friends how's that for a 60s term you must be really square and rob can't believe it what are you talking about And Laura's just kind of shocked. Rob, you're just overreacting so much. And, you know, this goes back and forth for a while until Laura finally says, I just don't see any problem with him being a mortician. And then it occurs to Rob that these two are talking about entirely different things. (laughs) Now, that's kind of a comical scene, funny scene, but it's not so comical when that happens when we're having... Evangelistic encounters with people, when we're talking to others about the gospel. what happened in this episode is that Rob and Laura were talking past each other. Um, they didn't take time to understand what each of them was talking about, and it resulted in some serious miscommunication. And I want to suggest that in this particular culture and day and age in which we live, that that can happen very often, very frequently, very easily. When we seek to talk to others about the gospel, we can talk past each other if we don't understand what each of us is talking about. Now, what we're doing here uh, is going through a sermon series, four parts, on evangelism. It's called Telling the Truth in a Postmodern Age. That's the title of this series. And um, the reason we're doing this is because evangelism is one of our core values here at New Life. Uh, We want to be a congregation of people who is eager to share the gospel. Um, bold in telling others about Jesus, seeking to bring people to faith. I'd love to see more and more people coming to New Life because they've just come to faith in Jesus. Uh, I'd love to see conversion growth here at New Life, not just transfer growth, which is good, but we want to see people come to faith. And if that's going to happen, all of us together, not just the pastor, uh, are going to have to be serious about evangelism. So we value evangelism Here at New Life, and what we're doing in this series is looking at seven principles of evangelism. And last week we began with the first two principles. We're going to take four sermons to go through these seven principles. Two principles last week, one principle today. Hopefully you can keep all those numbers straight. Uh, Here's what we did last week. We started with the first two principles. We learned that we should always show respect when we share the gospel with people, because that's what Paul did. As he was standing before the Areopagus, he showed respect. He was polite. He was cordial to the people that he was speaking to. The second principle we found was to seek to build bridges. If we don't show respect, what we do is burn bridges with people, and we eliminate the possibilities we have to communicate with them. If we show respect, we can enter into a relationship and find bridges. That is, things we have in common with unbelievers… And in particular, it's what we heard already, that eternity has been put in the hearts of every single person, and we can build on that as we seek to present the gospel to others. Today, we're looking at the third principle, which is this. We need to understand what others believe. These principles, by the way, they come from a guy named Jaron Bars, professor at Covenant Seminary, in his book, Heart of Evangelism. So this is the third principle, and all of these principles are coming out of Acts chapter 17, the passage that... Mandy just read to us so um, it's very important as we share the gospel that we seek to understand what others believe or else we're going to talk past each other so we're going to look at this from three perspectives we're going to consider why what and how Uh, why should we seek to understand what others believe what is it we're trying to understand and in particular uh, how do we go about this so let's begin with the why Why is this important, that we seek to understand what others believe? I can imagine maybe some objections from some people. I mean, that sounds like a lot of work. Uh, That means I'm going to have to spend a lot of time with people. It could mean I have to do some research and understand people's various worldviews and philosophies. And by the way, isn't it just enough to just share the gospel? I mean, isn't it enough just to tell people about Jesus and let God do the work? isn't that really all there is to evangelism? Do I really have to engage in this kind of understanding? Well, the reason I want to talk about this today is because we live in a culture in which things are changing very fast. Uh, Like Bob Dylan sang back in the 60s, the times, they are a-changing. And if that was true in the 60s, how much more is that true in 2013? The times are changing, When times change, people's opinions and perspectives and worldviews and philosophies, their thoughts about the nature of reality, those things change, and they can change rapidly. Do you remember that passage in Judges chapter 2? It talks about um, a new generation that grew up and did not know the Lord. The preceding generation knew the Lord. One generation passed, and you have a whole bunch of people who don't even know who God is. And just one generation, that's how fast things can change. That was back in the book of Judges. Philosophies, opinions, cultural worldviews can have a very powerful impact on the way people think. Have you ever heard of that analogy of the frog in the boiling water? If you put a frog in a pot pot of water and put the water on the stove and turn up the heat, as the analogy goes, the frog will just sit there comfortably in the water while the water gets hotter and hotter and hotter until eventually the water begins to boil and the frog is killed. And the whole time the frog had no idea what was happening. Wasn't aware of the significance of the changes taking place in its environment. (laughs) Didn't realize it until it was too late. That's the way cultural views, world views, philosophies can tend to work in a culture. Here's what happens. You'll have, typically, scholars in universities and academic institutions who begin to embrace certain ideas. They begin to talk. They begin to write books. They begin to lecture. And this is just at the kind of academic level. So that's where it all begins. Eventually, (coughs) writers and artists start to get a hold of what these guys are saying, And they start bringing it into the books they write and the movies they make and the music they make. And then people like you and me, we go out and we buy the books, we watch the movies, we listen to the music. And before long, what we're doing is swallowing, biting off large chunks of certain world views. And we're beginning to digest them and they begin to seep into our hearts and minds and affect the way we look at the world. And over a certain period of time, and sometimes quicker than others, we find that we're beginning to think in a way very differently than maybe we used to, even 50 years earlier. Um, D.A. Carzan has this example. He says, when, in this culture that we live in now, when you speak to an atheist, that atheist might think very differently than the atheist of 50 years ago. What he says is 50 years ago, an atheist was a Christian atheist, That is, the God that the atheist denied 50 years ago was the God of the Christian faith. An atheist, when he said, I don't believe in God, what he meant was, I don't believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I don't believe in the God of the Bible, because the typical atheist then had the basic elements of Christianity in his or her mind. But that's not necessarily the case anymore. A person who's an atheist might not be reacting at all to the Christian idea of God. I mean, you begin to dialogue with that person, assuming that that's what that person's thinking, and you can be talking right past it. Uh, an analogy that's been used is to think of like a bonfire. <clears throat> if there's a bonfire there and you want to light the bonfire, you want to get it on fire, you just go, you light it and it gets on fire. And that used to be the way it was. 50 years ago. you could begin to talk to an atheist and the bonfire of Christian basic doctrine was already in his mind. All you had to do was say a few things about being a sinner and what Jesus has done calling them to faith, and you might be able to light the fire of faith. But now, you've got to build the bonfire. You've you got to start farther back. You've you got to go back to the very beginning, in some cases, to get the basic elements of Christian faith in people's minds. So this is why it's, it's important to understand what others believe. Well, how is this in our text? How do we see this in Acts chapter 17? Well, let me show you this. Uh, again, this is Paul. He is in Athens, Greece, the same Athens that exists today. Athens was the intellectual capital of the ancient world. This is where Plato, Aristotle, Socrates did a lot of their very important writing and work. And Paul <clears throat> appeared before this group called the Areopagus in verse 22. So we looked at that last week. This was kind of like a council of authorities on matters of philosophy and religion. And Paul spoke <clears throat> before this group. But before he got to the Areopagus, he went into the marketplace of Athens. Look at verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So before he got to the Areopagus, Paul went to what would be the equivalent today of maybe the Muncie Mall or Starbucks or the soccer field. He he just went to this place where the common, everyday man and woman were, and we see what it was he was talking about. Look at the end of verse 18. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was preaching the gospel. He was talking about what Jesus has done, that he died on a cross and has been resurrected from the dead for the salvation of those who would believe in him. So here's Paul talking about the gospel. Now watch how people respond. What are people saying in response to? to the gospel. Look at verse 18. Others said he seems, um, No, before that, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Uh, That word babbler, it technically means seed picker. Uh, what, it, what it's referring to is a bird. Have you ever seen a bird kind of fall down on the ground and it begins to just kind of peck around on the ground and it's just looking for a stick or a little bit of a worm or some kind of thing it can take and build its nest? It's just randomly picking at various things with really no uh, specific intention in mind. That's what these people are saying about Paul in the gospel. Another way to interpret this is to say bird brain. This guy is a bird brain. Uh, He's just picking up these random, incoherent thoughts. They don't make any sense to us whatsoever. He's a babbler. He's a seed picker. And we see more of this in verse 20. You bring some strange things to our ears. The gospel sounds strange to these people. They don't have the basic furniture of the gospel in mind. The bonfire hasn't been built for them. The gospel seems weird. It seems bizarre to them. And what I want you to see here today, friends, is that that is more and more the situation that we live in today in this culture. When you talk about the gospel, people are going to think you're a bird brain. They're going to think that what you're talking about sounds strange. You start talking about sin. Well, people have been brought up thinking the most important thing for them is to develop self-esteem, to feel very good about themselves to think that they're okay and they're basically good. You start talking about sin, you sound really judgmental. You start talking about the father sending his son to die. Why would a father send his own son to die for anybody? That sounds very unfair, and at its worst, it might be child abuse. You start talking about truth, having the truth... The Bible is the truth. Christianity is the truth. That sure sounds arrogant. That sure sounds restrictive. That's the way people respond to what are just basic Christian categories. It sounds strange. And that's what we're going to be running into more and more as we evangelize. Well, let me show you something that Paul does here. That uh, I think is, is very instructive for us. If you would turn back to chapter 13, turn back to chapter 13, starting in about verse 13. Chapter 13, verse 13. You might have a heading right above that that says something about Paul being in Antioch. So here's Paul, he's in an entirely different place here, getting ready to preach the gospel. <clears throat> And notice how he goes about this. Um, it says um, that on the Sabbath day, verse 14, it's on the Sabbath day, they go into the synagogue, and in verse 15, what happens? There's a reading from the law and the prophets. And Paul is called upon in verse 16. He stands up, and who does he address? Men of Israel. He's speaking to Jews, those who fear God. Then verse 17. He goes into his discourse. He says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of us. Now he's referring to the exodus, the way God delivered his people from the nation of Egypt. Go on to verse 20. He refers to the judges that we read about in the book of Judges. He refers to Samuel, the prophet. Verse 23 Uh, No, verse 22, he refers to David. God raised up David to be their king, Uh, a man after God's own heart. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Here's what Paul is doing. He's talking to Jews, and so he's referring to the Old Testament that he knows the Jews are going to be familiar with. He knows they understand the Exodus. He knows they know about the judges. He knows they've heard of Samuel. He knows that they know about David. David. And so that's the bridge that he builds, referring to all of what he knows these people understand. But now we go ahead to chapter 17, back to Athens in chapter 17, and, and what does Paul do? I mean, This is maybe it's kind of an argument from silence, but if you were listening carefully as Mandy read this passage, there's no reference to the Exodus, there's no reference to Moses, there's no reference to Samuel, or Judges, or David, or the prophets. He never even quotes the Old Testament. He never refers to the Bible in this address to the Athenians. And Isn't that curious? In fact, he does something very different. Go ahead to verse 28 in Acts chapter 17. He says, In him we live and move and have our being. In your Bible that might be in quotes. The verse goes on. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Here's what Paul's doing. He's not quoting the Bible. He's quoting pagan poets. He's quoting the leaders of the Athenians in terms of their thinking and worldview of the day. He's looking to the popular spokespeople of their day and quoting them, as he tries to communicate the gospel to them. The reason he's doing this is because he knows, if he starts talking about the Old Testament, David, Moses, and, and, Dave, and uh, Samuel, that what he says is going to go right over the heads of the people in Athens. He's going to talk right past them, just like Rob and Laura in the Dick Van Dyke show, that they're not going to get each other. And again, friends, more and more, we're in this kind of cultural situation. Now, this isn't the case for everybody. I think when you get into certain more traditional areas, sometimes the Midwest and the South, there are more conservative traditional areas where people are thinking in Christian categories a little more, but those areas are becoming less and less prevalent. And typically in urban areas and in college towns, university cities, you'll find less and less of this assumption of basic Christian categories. And of course, you know that we live in a university town. So this is why we have to seek to understand what others believe. Well, let's go on to the second part of this. What is it that we're trying to understand? What are we trying to get a hold of? (laughs) Um, Now, this might get a little bit theoretical here, but I think it's important for us to understand what we're trying to understand. Um, Go back to verse 18. And note here that as Paul is in the marketplace and as he's talking to various people, he comes across some Epicurean, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So here is Paul ready to engage with some of the leading philosophers of the day. Now, when we think of philosophers today, generally, again, we think of people at the university the academic level. In this time, philosophers were more popularly followed and believed. So what the Epicureans and the Stoics believed is what generally the masses believed. And here's Paul conversing, having a discussion with these people. Now, what what did they believe? I I think Paul was able to dialogue with them. I think he had some knowledge of what they believed. So just for the sake of clarity, just very briefly, here's what these two groups believed. Epicureans, they had this idea of God as someone very far removed from our daily affairs we might call it a kind of a, a deism that they had a vague idea of god but or the gods but they were so far removed they were so detached from everyday life that they didn't have really any influence or impact on what happened in the daily lives of common people. So, everything in their minds happened randomly and by chance. They didn't believe in any judgment. They didn't believe in any afterlife. And so, for the Epicureans, the way to live is simply to get as, most, as much pleasure out of life as a person can right now. Just live for the moment. We can just sum it up this way. If it feels good, do it probably know some people who live like Epicureans. That sums up the Epicurean philosophy of life. If it feels good, do it. God's not going to notice. There's no judgment. He's way far away, not interested in me. I can do what I want. The Stoics (coughs) were a little different. The Stoics actually believed something very much the opposite. They did believe that God existed, but they didn't believe that He was really far away. They believed He was really close. In fact, they believed that He was so close that He was basically the same as creation, Creation and God were the same thing. It was a kind of a pantheism. They believed everything was God. And so, therefore, they believed that everything just happened in a very fatalistic kind of way. They didn't think they could do anything about the occurrences in their life. So, when bad things happen and painful things happen, they just resigned themselves very apathetically to it. They didn't try to pursue pleasure at all. Their lifestyle, their philosophy can be summed up this way, grin and bear it. It's a hard life. That's just the way it is. There's nothing we can do about it, so we might as well just put up with all the pain and the difficulty that we deal with. Those are the philosophies, the two primary philosophies of Paul's day, Epicureanism and Stoicism. Now, you're probably not going to run into too many Epicurean and Stoic philosophers today. Um, You're probably not going to have many opportunities to speak the gospel to people like that. But the fact that they were present in Paul's day and Paul was interacting with them causes us to think, well, what is the major philosophy of our day? What what is the prevailing viewpoint of our day that we need to be ready to deal with and to speak into? And that worldview is something called postmodernism. That's why that word is in the title to this sermon, Speaking the Truth, Telling the Truth in a Postmodern World. Now, I know this sounds very theoretical. Some of you might be thinking, postmodernism, what is that? I've never heard of that. I'm not interested. If you're at the academic level, if you're a teacher in a college or a university, or if you're a student at the university, you're sick and tired of hearing about postmodernism. I mean, at the university level, this is talked about all the time. Uh, but remember what I said, when certain ideas get gain traction at the academic level, eventually they find their way to trickle down into the popular mindset, and that's going to happen and is happening with this thing called postmodernism. Al, Al Mohler says this, the times are increasingly strange. That sense of strangeness is at least partly due to the rise of postmodern culture and philosophy. Perhaps the most important intellectual and cultural movement of the late 20th century. Postmodernism. You know about a modern world. We all know we live in a modern world. We have modern conveniences, modern luxuries. Postmodernism is just simply saying we're in a different age now. The modern period is in the past. We're after modernism, and it's a postmodern world. Now, there's four things I want to show you here briefly that characterize postmodernism. And this is what we're seeking to understand about the people we share the gospel with. One has to do with truth. In the postmodern mindset, there is no one universal truth. There's great skepticism about any claim that truth can be found. And in fact, truth is made, not found. You create your own truth. You make it up as you go along. What's true is just what's true for you. So truth is possessed by individuals in certain groups. And we all have our isolated, distinct truths from each other. But there's no capital T truth that encompasses everything. And so this leads to what we're all very familiar with, very much a kind of pluralistic mindset. That is the idea that all religions have their own truth. They're all equally legitimate. They're all legitimate paths to God. That comes out of a postmodern view of truth. As an example of this, there was a a letter written (coughs) to Dear Abby years ago asking Dear Abby, what should I do about the fact that when I have my family together, we start talking about religion and everything gets out of control and we start arguing with each other. And Dear Abby says, uh, what you should do is make sure that the topic of religion is always off limits because it is the height of arrogance for anyone to suggest to another that there are errors in the religion of their choice. It's the height of arrogance for you to say your view is true and another view is false. That." is postmodernism, and there's more and more of that view in our culture today, something you should be aware of when you talk to others about the gospel. The view of authority, the postmodern view of authority is that authority is something to be suspicious of, skeptical of. Authority is to be overthrown. There is no book, creed, doctrine, teacher, pastor, or institution that should have any authority. Because those who have authority possess authority for basically one purpose, to oppress and control others. That's what authority is about. So the postmodern mindset is deconstruct, take apart authority, resist authority. That's why you see so much irreverence in popular culture, in movies, in music. It's just a defiance of all authoritative structures, very postmodern. Morality. Postmodern view of morality. Morality in a postmodern culture is determined by popular vote, determined by consensus. That's why you see on the news all the time, anytime something happens, what do you immediately see? The popular opinion vote. What does everybody think about this? Because what the most people think is what is morally right. This extends even to the point where in some scholarly circles, people are questioning whether the Holocaust can even be called evil, that that is something that is morally wrong only from one particular perspective. But from a Nazi perspective, maybe it's not so wrong. That's the kind of question that is being raised in a postmodern culture. In this culture, you might find it more difficult to explain sin than the Trinity when you're talking to people because sin is just so far beyond anybody's expectation. The only thing perverse in a postmodern world is the idea that any behavior could be perverse. Lastly, with regard to meaning, there is no meaning in a postmodern world. That there is no coherence to the stories that we live. In fact, what they say is there is no big story. They call it a meta narrative. A meta narrative is just a big story. There's no big story to explain all the little stories, there's no big story to explain your story, your personal story. There's no universal storyline. We just live in a world that is just a disjointed collection of events with no particular significance or meaning. That's a very postmodern viewpoint. sums up very well in the movie Memento about ten years ago. You watch Memento, and it makes absolutely no sense. It seems to have no... Um, it, it doesn't seem to flow in a typical storyline. It seems to go backwards. You can't really tell what events occur before what other events. Events that seem later occurring early, and events that were supposed to be earlier occurring late, and you can't really make sense of it. That's a postmodern view of reality. There is no big storyline. But as Christians, we we believe in a storyline, don't we? We have a story that we tell. <laughs> The gospel is a story. The gospel goes like this. God creates to begin with. That's the beginning of the story. He creates us upright. He puts Adam and Eve in a garden, and everything is great, but Adam and Eve rebel against God, and so there's a fall from grace. And the entire human race is then plunged into sin, and so death and anguish and poverty and sickness Come into our daily experience, but God is merciful and gracious and loving, and He has a plan, and He sends His Son. He comes into our world in the person of His Son, Himself, to redeem us, to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for our sins, to be resurrected from the dead, to overcome the powers of death and the powers of Satan, so that any who trust in Him can know their sins are forgiven. And then God commits himself to drawing people to his son through faith, and he builds up this thing called the church that's a light in this fallen and dark world. And that's the place in the story where we are right now. Jesus has come, and now we're looking ahead to the end of the story, glorification, when Jesus comes again, and he's going to bring history to a close. And he's going to resurrect our bodies and we're going to live together on a glorified new earth with one another with all evil and sin and pain and anguish eliminated forever. That's the story. That's the Christian story. That's what we're going to sing about. I love to tell the story. We're going to sing in just a minute. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it is true. It satisfies my longings as nothing Else can do. That's our story, and we tell this story as we share the gospel. The postmodern world has no idea about a story. So that's what we're trying to understand. That's what people believe. Now, the last thing I want to talk about here is is how. How do we go about understanding these things? Because I know some of you might be thinking, I don't, you mean to tell me I got to understand postmodernism in order to evangelize? I mean, do I have to have a college degree for this? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying, you don't necessarily have to know postmodernism, but in order to evangelize effectively, you you have to understand people. You have to understand who people are. Francis Schaeffer used to say this, if you have 60 minutes with a person, spend 55 of those minutes asking questions to get to know who they are, to get to know what they believe. To get to know what their assumptions are. That is a very effective way to begin any kind of evangelistic encounter. In fact, the elders and I, we engaged in a little exercise a little while ago where we all found an unbeliever in our lives and we committed ourselves to asking that unbeliever five questions. And I would just commend this to you. As you think about that person that you thought of last week, right, that person that I suggested you think of that you might want to share the gospel with, maybe begin by asking just five questions. Where did the world come from? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about life after death? And if you could ask God one question, what would it be? Just ask questions, friends. Just begin by getting to know people. Getting to know what they believe. The person that you thought of last week, do you know what they believe? Do you have any idea where they're coming from? Let me share with you some uh, answers here that we got as elders from the people we talked to. Where did the world come from? Cosmic accident. What do you believe about God? Fictional character created by humans to explain their existence and to create hope for an afterlife. What do you believe about Jesus? I believe that Jesus was a person that existed, but no more than that. He stood up for the poor and unfortunate in a time of tyrannical rule, but he was no more than a man. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? I would ask him why he took my husband from me. You know, sometimes the, people's, the objections that people have to the gospel are, are not always wrapped up in postmodernism and intellectual objections they're coming from deep pain and hurt disappointment but we don't know that unless we start asking questions so i commend those to you as we seek to evangelize as we seek to understand what others believe but i just want to end with this as important as it is to understand what others believe i I want to encourage you to not be afraid We hear a lot about what's going on in our culture. We hear a lot about postmodernism. It makes us think that the situation is hopeless. But friends, do not be afraid because the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. The strength of postmodernism is not going to prevail against the church. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God endures forever. Our message is not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power. Salvation, in the end, is by the power of the gospel. And Jesus Christ is alive, resurrected from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion and all philosophies and all worldviews. His name is the name that is above every name, both in this postmodern age and in the age to come. We have no reason to fear as we take the gospel to the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, the instruction we get from it. Help us, God, as we seek to be understanding people, as we seek to know who we're talking to. Help us to do that well and lead us to opportunities to share the gospel with others. In Jesus' name, amen.